Hi everyone, I'm Erin G and this is Alt Text. Just a quick note to say that this is going to be the last episode of the show for a few weeks because I need to take some time off to enjoy summer and, and of course to catch up on some writing projects that I have been very delinquent on. So the show will be back in mid-September. In this episode, I'm joined by Clev Misador, the executive director of the Blockchain Foundation, a 501c3 organization, which is basically a type of nonprofit in the United States. The Blockchain Foundation is leading an industry-wide crypto education campaign. Clev is also a former advisor at the Blockchain Association and the founder of the National Policy Network for Women in Color in Blockchain. She has a Master's of Arts from Howard University and is a member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which is the same sorority that Vice President Harris belongs to. Clev got her start in politics as the Director of Communications for U.S. Representatives Betty McCollum and Barbara Lee, and was then later appointed to the role of Director of Public Affairs for the U.S. Department of Commerce's Economic Development Administration by President Obama, where she was charged with promoting White House economic programs and national public-private partnerships in order to advance innovation and entrepreneurship. Clev and I spoke about her career, how conversations around crypto continue to center whiteness, what smart policy and regulations for crypto and blockchain might look like, and that just maybe crypto isn't as bad as many think. So here's my conversation with Clev Misador. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of your some of your early interviews. Yeah, of course. I, I thought we we had some interesting conversations at Quantum, and so I kind of wanted to pick up on those threads. Um, and so before we kind of get into the whole crypto Web3 of it all, I wanted to start off with learning more about uh, your your career and how you kind of came into politics and then how you kind of evolved from politics to crypto. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because I actually published a book in 2020. It's called The Clevolution, My Quest for Justice in Politics and Crypto. And interestingly, it was politics that led me to crypto. It was during the Obama administration in 2013 I first learned about Bitcoin in 2013 while serving in the Obama administration. A friend had a Bitcoin project and asked me to have a press release, which I did the research for the press release, wrote the press release for him. And then all of a sudden I saw Bitcoin everywhere, even though I had not heard about it before the ask. But I'll, I'll go back a little further. Right? So I, I have a master's degree from Howard University. I grew up in New York City, but I actually moved to Washington, D.C., to go to a grad school at Howard University. And it was, you know, during grad school that I decided to focus on politics, you know, going to grad school in Washington, DC. And, and then my first semester during grad school, I interned at CNN's Washington Bureau, which is all about politics all the time. So at some point, 
you know, I decided to jump into the rabbit hole of politics. My first, my first campaign was actually Janet Reno's governor's race. And I was her deputy communications director when she went, went for governor in 2022, I'm sorry, 2002. And we lost the primary, but it really gave me the political bug. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that that's how I wanted to make a social impact. And from the Janet Reno campaign, I worked on multiple national races, including the governor's race in Louisiana with Kathleen Blanco. That was 2003, where Kathleen Blanco won against Bobby Jindal, who then, after Katrina, ended up winning. But, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working in some really pivotal races that were on, you know, the national stage that helped me to sort of navigate you know the political landscape so I went from doing national political campaigns to going to work for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee which focuses on congressional races and then I went to you know work on the 2008 presidential campaign when Kerry was running I worked on one of the first 527 organizations called America Coming, America Coming Together and then, you know, went to work on Capitol Hill. I first worked for Barbara Lee and then Betty McCollum mm-hmm. and, and then joined the Obama administration after that historic win. And it was actually during the, I would say the, the Obama administration, the role I had there put me on the path to why crypto made sense. Hmm. So during the Obama administration, I served as the director of public affairs for the Economic Development Administration. It's one of those agencies that most people have never heard of, but it's very powerful when it comes to economic development. You know, it's 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 one of those, you know, agencies that punches above its weight class, I think is the saying. You know, while EDA is, you know, its budget is a rounding error for the Department of Labor, but we're constantly in meetings, in roundtables, in working groups with the Department of Labor playing a bigger role than they were. EDA really focused on having a large footprint across America's cities and regions. And it was all about creating jobs, creating economic growth and infusing cash into economically depressed regions to help them to grow foreign direct investment to actually operate much more cohesively as a region when you look at a lot of the areas where we put small grants and you know and and allowed local municipalities to leverage the convening power of the government to actually catalyze those funds so so you know in at EDA we we measured the impact of our small grants in three six nine year increments in terms of what was the impact three years from now, six years from now, nine years from now. Like, and we gave a $1 million grant or a $500,000 grant knowing that that would, that would give them the credibility, that region to get billions or millions from other entities. And so when I first learned about Bitcoin, you know, it was very interesting as I learned more. It was about the economic empowerment that an agency like EDA was seeking. And it came just in time when, you know, after I left the Obama administration, I really became disillusioned with politics. And 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 I and I and I recognized that the impact I wanted to make was not gonna be possible in, in public policy. Mm. That, you know, Washington is a place where, you know, your dreams of ch- changing the world, 
you know, gets white whitewashed really quickly. And that whitewash is is into this, you know, Hollywood for pol- politicians where you get caught up and you start into groupthink and it's no longer about the people, it's really about the power. So so when I, you know, decided to leave politics, you know, I started looking around and blockchain was just everywhere, crypto was everywhere. So I started going down the rabbit hole, learning more. And 2017, I moved back to New York where, oh my God, the ecosystem for crypto in New York at that time was incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and that spring of 2017, I decided I'm going to do this full time. I'm leaving all politics. And that was over six years ago. And I've been working full time in crypto ever since. And for me, it was really about that connection of how to make a social impact. So it's interesting now, six years later, thinking about when I first got into crypto, the people who got me into this space were all about decentralization. We all wanted to change the world. We all wanted to create a better financial system. We came at it from different libertarian, you know, lenses, right? Whether libertarian, the, you know, cypherpunks, the, you know, black libertarian, the social justice folks from all over the world but decentralization was like the key tenet and after bitcoin hit twenty thousand dollars in december 2018 that changed right not only did wall street and silicon valley start paying attention people i think the industry those of us who many people who came for decentralization started focusing on store value started focusing on well, this is, you know, 20,000 was proof of concept. How far can it go? And you saw, you know, to the moon become such a concept. So I, so I think the industry has splintered, you know, quite a bit. And we've seen that over the years of people who have publicly said they're leaving crypto because they think that the values that they came to it are not there. But what I, what I say to that is for people of color, for women who came in for decentralization, we don't have that luxury, right? Mm. Because we know that this is about providing alternatives to people. This is about, you know, the fact that the more options individuals have, the more inclusive money becomes. Mm-hmm. We don't have the luxury of w- walking away from an option because it's no longer doing what we wanted it to do nationally. Because decentralization is our North Star, because that is where we we needed to we needed to work for these people in this block, in this community, in this small city, in this remote town, right? So, and that's what it's doing. When people say, you know, where's the financial inclusion use case? I don't see it. That's because you're looking in the same places where you've been looking. You're looking to CEOs for showing you financial <laughs> inclusion. You're looking for multinational companies, and you're ignoring the small micro projects that are not at scale yet where people are literally using it to provide safer payment systems where they're using it to protect the 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 the, the amount of the small monies that they have because banks can no longer be trusted they're they're leveraging it to to really have a pathway to actually access an asset class that is, you know, high net worth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, you know, while while some people are disillusioned where crypto has become, I'm excited about where crypto is going and what, his, mm-hmm. what it has not become, mm-hmm. what it will be. And I think that's the, that, that's what keeps me here. 
I love the the fact that when you got into crypto, it was kind of quote unquote for everyone, and there were people involved of various political stripes. And I think you're absolutely correct in that when you say that women and people of color don't have the luxury of leaving something because it has evolved in a way that you hadn't maybe anticipated. And I think that maybe crypto is guilty or has been subject to the the loudest voices kind of rising to the top and kind of dominating the conversation. And those voices have typically, well, not typically, they are white and they are male. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of painted uh, the crypto and blockchain industry with these uh, negative attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Because even when you look at the narrative around crypto, not just in the national media, but in Washington, it's through a white male lens, mm-hmm. a wealthy, privileged white male lens. When they when Washington does hearings, even hearings where they want to actually ask people about financial inclusion, they only want to talk to CEOs and the mm-hmm. high network folks. Right. And even in the media regardless of the data that shows the nerve center of adoption is within communities of color, working class people, younger people, they still talk about the crypto bros as if they dominate the, the, the industry. Just because you know a few small group of people can amass a whole bunch of Bitcoin, it does not negate the fact that these large demographics are the ones fueling that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So so that is absolutely part of the issue we found ourselves. Decentralization is what crypto has brought to the table, but the centralized entities, those traditional institutions, they still want to look at things from a centralized lens. And they want to pretend that the deep bench of women within crypto does not exist. Right? They don't want, they're dismissing the fact that women, regardless of the industry, we're not getting the VC money, you know, we're not getting the funding from banks. Mm-hmm. We're not even getting the level of crowdfunding we should have, but we're still building and we're still fueling. And it doesn't change the fact that our footprint is real. So, but, but I do think that what we're doing right now in crypto is we're laying down a foundation. The people who will really commercialize the space, the people who will really determine the utility Right now, they're probably, they're under 25. Heck, mm-hmm. They're probably under 20. When you look at some of the young people and how they're looking at crypto, I hear so much from them about value chain and, 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 and supply chain. And when we think of that, right, we think of, oh, Louis Vuitton is using it to actually track the value chain of of luxury goods. Even big pharma and medical companies are looking at the value chain for drugs, right? How do we make sure the quality of the the products we say that left this place gets to this place authenticate? But when you look at young people and I hear from them, they're talking more about, you know, their products that claim to be sustainable, that claim to be, you know, healthy for the environment. Those young people want to know, not only, they want to know, is that true in a multitude of ways, right? Mm -hmm. They want to know, well, 
what is the origin of the materials it was created? Right. What is the origin of how it got here? Who, who, what was part of the manufacturing and the creation along the way? Mm-hmm. And for them, that's, so they want tools to authenticate that because for them, the, the, the environment is not just something they can say, oh yeah, we should protect it. The one is it might not be around for their children and grandchildren. So, so the reason I'm optimistic is how communities of color who, who for them, when there are alternatives, when there are no alternatives, alternatives are the only alternative, mm-hmm. like they're leveraging crypto in ways that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, like, cause the beauty of crypto is that it, it standardizes non-traditional practices mm-hmm. with non-traditional approaches. When you look at DAOs, that's all that is, right? DeFi, right? How many of us know people who have been, you know, bypassing brokers, right? For lending and borrowing, right? My aunt has a house and is just like, okay, you pay me such and such every year for such and such. And when you pay, pay it, I'll give you the deed. I'll sign the deed over to you. And this way it cuts out the middlemen. So, yeah. so I do think that I'm optimistic about the future because of the micro use cases, the, 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 the what's in the blind spot of the current industry, the, what's in the blind spot of media and of Washington is what's going to make this industry my God, the transformative, you know, presence and power that it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm getting a sense of it, but what, what does it mean to you to kind of advocate for um, social justice in blockchain and crypto? Yes. So I, I will say, you know, I, I think like for my book, my quest is for justice, but I think I advocate for for people to have options right so i'm i i love and when i use crypto i think i'm thinking of web3 DeFi. i'm thinking Mm -hmm. of digital assets i'm thinking of you know blockchain technology you know i'm thinking of across the various protocols i just love this space but you know i would say that i am not advocating for crypto specifically because i'm one of those people who believes that this technology, this asset class, this new marketplace, it's an option that people have that is not for everyone. And it's an option that if you have better alternatives, go with the better alternatives. Mm-hmm. Again, the more options individuals have, the more money, the, the more money becomes in- inclusive, the more the marketplace becomes inclusive, the more the workplace becomes inclusive, the more the you know commerce becomes inclusive, right? So I, I would say that I think when those, for those of us who are looking at creating, you know, a level playing field, right? Those who want empowerment and opportunity and equity, right? That, that, that toolbox is very diverse and it has to include blockchain cryptocurrency, right? Because of the decentralization nature, because of, you know the the access the to 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 new asset classes, but it also has to include AR and VR and machine learning and AI and robotics because these emerging technologies none of them require a degree, none of them require 
permission to actually join these yeah. right with all of them all you need is a get a certificate program and you can get a job making seventy five thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow and when we look at where we've been along the technology prism you don't even have to be technical right so many of the applications are drag and drop that we are at a pivotal time where emerging technologies are accessible to everyone and anyone. Today, anyone can build a website, including your grandma. Anyone can build an app, including your grandma, right? So, so, so I want equity and I want justice, but what I want is for people to have access to the tools to determine what that means for themselves. I know what that means for me. Mm. So as I as I see myself as an advocate in this space, I know that as I'm, I look at it from a very, I, I guess, holistic perspective, because I know Native communities, Indigenous communities are leveraging this technology in a different way mm-hmm. than Black communities, right, than Latino communities, than LGBTQIA communities, right? So, so when we look at social justice and, you know, equity, that means different things from different communities. And we are finally at a point where there's enough of the toolbox for people to determine what is the tools that they need, right? And how can we, decentralization means there are no winners and losers, that you can win and I can win, right? That we're not trying to create the next Facebook, the next Mark Zuckerberg, the next Elon Musk, we're actually just making sure this community works, that community works, and the whole network works. Mm-hmm. And so as the executive, like, actually, let's talk about the Blockchain Foundation where you're the executive director. What, what is the Blockchain Foundation? Yeah, so the Blockchain Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means just that, just like any other 501c3 nonprofit organization. And what we do in in the crypto space is education, education, education. We have the luxury of focusing on education. You know, we are the sister entity to the Blockchain Association, which is a 501c6, but we actually see ourselves you know, launching an uh, education campaign for the entire industry, right? Regardless of your protocol or what aspect of the industry you work in. And so what I like to tell people is while the industry is focused on adoption, the Blockchain Foundation is focused on, focused on access, right? While the industry is edu- wants to educate elected officials, we want to educate leaders of public institutions, right? A lot of people think the power base is Washington or the elected halls across states and cities, but really the nonprofit, the heads of nonprofits, the heads of advocacy groups, when you look at the environmental groups, right? The healthcare groups, the reproductive rights groups, the economic growth groups, those people represent large constituencies that actually do what their leaders tell them. And also a lot of these groups, right? The people at the No Center of Adoption belong to these groups. And they're looking to these groups that they trust for guidance on emerging technologies, on blockchain and cryptocurrency. And these leaders have no idea what this thing is, but they also are very distrustful of their industry, right? And they're very cautious about engaging the industry. For the foundation, we see ourselves as a bridge to public institutions, the 501c3s, the nonprofits, right? Because we can just focus on education. We 
we can have conversations, but we don't need to convince you to love crypto or hate crypto, right? We can come in and actually do workshops and focus on the fundamentals because you're interested in understanding it, not because you're interested in adapting it, right? You want to know what's the relevance to you. So we're never going to talk to you about, oh my God, here's a layer one and here's an here's a example of a layer two, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what permission and permissionless is. Because those of us who are in the space, we know it took us over two years to get it, right? And we had to start with the basics. And today, we don't have enough entities that spend enough time in the basics, right? In the fundamentals. We go into, you know, meetings with elected officials and leaders of public institutions, and we go in about our protocol and how, you know, this, this technology is going to transform this. And they're just like, what is this person talking about? Most of the time, they literally leave and they think, oh, these people really are crazy. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, have you seen Congress? Like, (laughs) Exactly. So so we we really want, you know, as a foundation, we really want to be that bridge to the organizations that have the greatest influence over everyday people. And those people are leaders of community colleges. They, They lead libraries. They are the, the ones who are in charge of financial literacy centers, right? Mm. These are the places where we need to focus on, oh my God, workforce training centers, right? We, the, if you're focused on adaption, you need to focus on return on investment and value as a foundation. We don't have, we don't have those, those goals or priorities because the the value add in these areas are it's hard to quantify right but we do know that you know the environmentalists can say anything that they want but if we start talking to environmental groups one-on-one we can share that you can actually we can we can share the truth is you can measure the footprint of, of crypto across the ecosystem right there is no fungibility and that is the reason why we're targeted so much right so many other polluters or negative impact of the industry because we can't they cannot figure out how these things but because of crypto because of how crypto uses uses energy or electricity or whatever it is we can say okay Here's how, why we should be using renewable options. Here's how we can, and we can actually solve the problem. And 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 for me, that is transformative. And we can only do that if we're actually talking to environmental groups without trying to convert them or get them to our side. Right, because you could say like we have X solution and it will reduce GHGs or whatever, and and using the blockchain will use x amount of energy on the blockchain and like you can kind of do that uh yeah you can measure it and quantify it and say here here are the numbers right here's what we can do here's what we can't do because the reality is we know what's killing the environment is not (laughs) crypto mining yeah absolutely and so you you talked about uh financial literacy which is something that you also brought up when we were in Miami. And, you know, over the past year, when crypto kind of blew up in the zeitgeist, uh, very negatively, um, uh, there were so many stories about all of these people who had lost so much money. And 
financial literacy in communities of color is generally quite low. And so how important is financial literacy to these communities who also may be unbanked or may have distrust in governments because they're from uh, developing nations or have autocratic governments where they may have come from? Yes, uh, it's a great question. And I will start by saying financial literacy across socioeconomic status across race is extremely low. Mm. The, uh, people, of, people of color, poor people, you know, marginalized people do not have a cornerstone on financial illiteracy. The data shows that in 2020 alone, financial illiteracy cost the US $415 billion, $415 wow. billion. There's even data that shows by individual how much financial illiteracy costs. And that, that average is about $10,000 depending on who you are, right? I remember working for Congresswoman Betty McCollum during the 2008 financial crisis when members of Congress had to decide whether to bail out the banks, mm. right? Mm -hmm. If you remember, you know, Lehman Brothers fell, all of these. And I worked for a member of Congresswoman Betty McCollum who said, wait a minute, we're deciding whether to bail out banks and we don't even understand what derivatives are. <laughs> like she literally stepped, stepped back and said, hey, 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 we first need a primer, right? Mm -hmm. What are these terms and what they mean? And she, she insisted on having a vocabulary. Actually, Politico picked up on it and actually did a story. And she insisted rightfully that members of Congress had to have, like you can't be regulating banks that are doing these you know, practices that you have no idea what they are and then deciding to use public funds to bail them out ultimately. They did bail them out even against what, what I had recommended, but I was a lowly <laughs> communications director at the time. But, 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 but I will say financial literacy, so financial illiteracy is something that again, runs the gamut across race across socioeconomic status. So that means we need to focus on financial literacy across financial literacy across the board. Right? And, and I'll give you an example. When you look at the collapse of Terra Luna or Celsius or FTX, let's be honest, right? Black and Latino people or, or women, that is not where we had our money. We were not at, oh, Terra Luna and algorithmic stable coin, that's where I'm putting in my, my, my money. Mm -hmm. that, that was wealthy retail investors. When mm -hmm. you look at Celsius, that was the wet dream of, of, of Wall Street trying to layer on. Mm -hmm. Even FTX, which was more centralized than decentralized, right? When you look at how people, you know, communities of color, communities that have been marginalized or lack access, their North Star is where the safest aspects of crypto. They're, they're over, over indexed in Bitcoin and Ethereum. They're part of the Web3 and DeFi ecosystem, right? A lot of the most riskiest parts of this industry are from sophisticated retail investors. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't focus on, on that collapse. So for me, I spent a lot of time, you know, really putting that in perspective. If we need to have guardrails and, and, and consumer protections for everyone, I am one of those people who believes that the most fiscally astute people are poor people, are people who have been lacked out. 
you know, all people who have very little to invest or little, very little to lose. When you look at Silicon Valley Bank, right, and and a bank that leveraged all of its deposits, right, that was that was it, most of its patrons were VCs, entrepreneurs, the, the wealthiest of the wealthiest. And it seems normal that, oh, okay, they lost, you know, the bank had no reserves, everybody's, and we're just going to bail them out. But that's not stupid. That's not dangerous. But mm-hmm. poor people, marginalized people, stay away from this because that's not for you. I think we need to do a rethinking of how we look at financial literacy. I think financial literacy in today in the 21st century, it's really recognizing the fact that we've done a poor job teaching people about traditional finance. And now that we're laying on decentralized finance, now that we're, you know, really have all of these, you know, different toolboxes within the financial ecosystem, we need to educate people about traditional and decentralized finance. And we need to make sure that their first exposure is not with YouTube. And we do that by making sure we're talking, that that we're first offering financial literacy in K-12 schools that includes digital assets, but also our financial literacy centers across the US are teaching people about traditional finance as well as decentralized finance, because we know the no center of adoption is among working class people, right? So I think that's how we make a difference. And we stop accepting the fact that it's okay for, for, for wealthy or middle-class investors to do stupid things. And while we, and that's our rationale for keeping, you know, people who have been locked out even more locked out when they're not the ones who are the bad actors within the financial ecosystem. Yeah, we culturally, we, we tend to like criminalize, criminalize poverty a lot. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, you, you, t- you mentioned a couple of times uh, two different, well, two, you mentioned two different things, but related. So you talked about um, the Congress people needing to edu- wanting to educate themselves or needing to educate themselves in a particular field before regulating it. And then you talked about regulations again, and the SEC and the CFTC are have been all over the news the past few weeks because they are launching a million lawsuits against some of uh, the biggest players in crypto uh, and basically doing uh, regulation by enforcement. And so what does smart regulation look like for crypto? Yeah, well, the, unfortunately, smart regulation for crypto does not look like this, right? <laughs> so the, the reality of, of the current state of public policy in Washington right now when it comes to crypto is an avoidance to creating the rules of the road. When we look at the UK, they've just passed MICA, right? Mm. Or Mika, depending on you know how you say it, tomato, tomato. But that was the first time, you know, a government in the Western world, because mm. let's be honest, we've seen Bermuda, Barbados, and the Bahamas create regulatory sandboxes to foster entrepreneurship in a very, you know, targeted way. 
But in the Western world, you know, Mika was the first attempt where the government said, okay, we have to sit there and think about this and understand these digital assets and try to create rules so that entrepreneurs and businesses would know how to innovate. So what we have now is regulatory agencies that don't want to do that. We know we've been using 1930s policies to regulate financial services. We know the current rules don't work for traditional banking because that's why we've had three banks collapse. Mm -hmm. We know they don't work for fintechs because they've been crying out for better regulation. And we know they don't work for, for the crypto space because crypto touches so many aspects that it's not, you know, it goes beyond traditional banking or these, these different assets. So what you have in the US is an ongoing fight that about, about territory that did not start with crypto, right? So when you look at you know, the CFTC and the, the SEC, the SEC is probably the longest running regulatory body in crypto, it's the most powerful. It wants to maintain power. The CFTC is a, is a newer body and has less power. When you, the, the SEC is regulated by the House Financial Services Committee and the US Senate, I'm sorry, you, you, the Senate Banking Committee. The, the CFTC, its oversight is with the House Ag and the Senate Agricultural Committees, right? And so when you look at this, 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 this fight for power, it's been happening for a while now, while the, FTC, the CFTC wants to keep its dominance, right? So what we have now is because of the multiple ways you can regulate crypto, right? You can, you can regulate cryptos as securities, if it's the SEC, or as commodities, if it's the CFTC, right? But it's not, these are not the only two regulatory bodies, right? The OCC can determine, you know, a pathway to get bank charters. The CFPB can look at the consumer protection lens in addition to a whole host of other regulatory bodies. And what we've seen is under Ken Gensler, an SEC that wants to focus on power over people. Right. It really is stepping on the oversight and the authorities of the OCC, CFPB, and every other agency, including Treasury, that you could think of. But why and at what cost? Right. And what we've seen is Congress responding, some Congress, some of Congress saying, come on, create the rules of the road. And regulatory agencies are telling Congress, no, 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 you have to pass legislation so that we didn't create rules based on legislation, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. This, is, this is the regulatory uncertainty that, that we're living on, we're living under. So it's interesting, right? The Binance, you could argue that the Binance, Swing Binance was a long time coming, right? Because of the the tensions with CZ yeah. for a long time. But when you look at Coinbase, right? Before the SEC sued Coinbase, Coinbase sued the SEC wanting regulatory clarity, mm -hmm. demanding that they create the rules of the road. And then the SEC pushed back and the, the courts determined, yeah, you have to respond to Coinbase's request for clarity. And then all of a sudden they're getting sued, right? At the, end of the, at the end of the day, 
we know we need new rules. We need new rules for digital assets. We need new rules for fintechs, right? And we know that consumer protection is important. That's not the issue. The issue is we have a federal government would be on the regulatory side through the Biden administration or in Congress that don't want to provide those rules, right? That, that, that is quite frankly, in my opinion, lazy. They keep saying that the current rules are sufficient, that crypto, the crypto industry should just follow those current rules. You mean the current rules that just led to the, 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 the three largest banking collapse in our time? Those rules, right? The, the current rules that when you look at FTX, the, the SEC itself has, been, has had to admit that if they were paying attention, that the, the signs were all there, that, that FTX would have never collapsed. And then when you look at why didn't you do that, Gensler, is it because the, the president of Alameda was your former mentee from Harvard? Mm. And that the FTX had an open door to your office. So, you know, this, this incestuous pull of U.S. policy when it comes to crypto is ridiculous. I'm sorry, Congressman Brad Sherman or Senator, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you are wrong on this issue because the both of them are more concerned about shock and awe and being relevant in the news instead of doing the hard piece. And Senator Warren, you know damn well the environment needs greater attention than you sitting here telling young people that crypto is going to kill their environment. That is so irresponsible. And, and so the, the, the good news is all of this is obvious to the future of this nation, right? We have, you know, we have, and I'm, this is not a, just a generational piece where old people don't like crypto and young people are, are right on it. No, this is one where there are people who don't want to be stuck in, we need to go back to the past, we need to go to the past and, and understand that in order for the US to win the future, to participate or even com compete in the future, we have to set our sights on the future. We have to do the hard work of understanding AI before we can regulate it. We have yeah. to do the hard work of understanding digital assets and blockchain and the difference, right? Right now, all we have is a Washington that is stuck in the past and is hoping that no one's paying attention because quite frankly, the reality is they're incapable of regulating for the future. And we need new leaders in place. And that doesn't mean younger leaders. That means people who are visionary, people who are thought leaders, people who understand that we need to figure out the, the challenges 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, and put in the rules of the roads for that instead of just constantly being reactive. No, 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 we have to ban this. The last thing I would say is, when you look at you know Gensler's approach, and the CFTC is by no means you know perfect agency, but when you look at Gensler's attempt to not just ban crypto, to take down every you know exchange that is crypto and push them out of the the, the U.S., you know what he's going to get pretty far in terms of really you know neutralizing the crypto industry. 
But I liken that to China trying to ban social media, mm. right? When, so, so just like the social media, crypto is borderless. You can mm-hmm. ban it in the U- crypto in the US. You can ban social media in China. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, the only people who, who, who suffer in both cases are the community, the most vulnerable communities, the communities that have been marginalized. So no, Gensler, just like China, you, you, you're not going to hurt the power brokers. You only hurt the people you continue to hurt, which is short-sighted, which is such a shame. I'll stop Man. there. <laughs> Man, uh, I have so much to think about. Oh, my goodness. Clev, this was so great. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity to have the conversation. As you can see, once I get on my soapbox, you have to get me off. (laughs) It's funny because um, Canada doesn't have such a robust like regulatory system. And our, I mean, Canadian news is just not as sexy to everyone because we're just kind of off on our own little corner of the world. So like following all of the, the news around the, the CFTC and the SEC has just been like really interesting. Um, like telenovela, telenovela, right? Yeah. soap opera in yeah. a different so language. Like, yeah, and so hearing um, hearing your your perspectives on it is like so much more. It's so much different than just reading about it, you know. Um, so are you are you in New York right now? What's uh, what's the deal? Oh, I'm in DC. I'm in DC, and then I head to Chicago later this week. So. Yeah. Hitting all the hot places. <laughs> yeah, there has been a lot of travel, but it has been great to really get the message around, you know, inclusion and decentralization and making sure that we talk about expanding access to women and marginalized communities. Yeah. Yeah. Are you heading up uh, any big conferences over the rest of the year or what's the plan? Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually heading to Chicago for the American Library Association Conference. We have a booth for the foundation because we actually want to create the first one-stop shop for information in crypto, a virtual digital assets public library. And then, you know, this fall, I will be speaking at Money 2020 in, in Vegas, but also also doing a few other conferences as well, as well as planning. We're planning a forum at Howard University for Howard University's business school to do uh, blockchain fundamentals for business school students as well as as faculty, you know, as folks are, you know, especially business school students who are looking at financial services, we want to make sure that they know they have access to the industry as well, the crypto industry. Very cool. Very cool. I love DC, (laughs) (laughs) which is not a popular opinion. Uh, No, well, you know what? There's so many aspects of DC, but DC is like one of the most global places in the world where every culture, every nation has to touch, but also every advocacy group has to engage here. Mm -hmm. So beyond, you know, the, the toxicity of, you know, Capitol Hill and, you know, the Supreme Court and the White House, there is this, you know, it's like a, the global courtyard where everybody must come through at some point. Yeah. 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 That's probably why I, I liked it so much. I lived there for a little bit, but not, I didn't have much to do with uh, the political stuff. It was mostly just hanging around you and 14th. 
but that's the beauty of DC as well. Even for just that, you can do that here. Yes, yeah. it is like a playland for you know so many great restaurants and activities and to do and festivals. Yeah, and you're just like a completely different city. It's so strange. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, thank you so much. Um, I will be in touch when this goes up, probably in a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation and also for creating this platform. Yeah, absolutely. And I will be in touch with you soon. So enjoy the rest of all. Have safe travels to Chicago (laughs) and uh, good luck with uh, what's going on next. Oh my God. And, And good luck with your new venture as well. I'm excited for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, that does it for this week. A huge thank you to Clev for joining me. And of course, a huge thank you to everyone who tunes in every week. Starting this new show has been very daunting and a lot of work, but I truly appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen and share with their friends. Like I said at the top, I'll be back in a few weeks. But in the meantime, you can find me on the app formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads, Instagram, probably something else that I can't think of. So until next time, see you later.